Season three of The Fairer Sense is sponsored by FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software for freelancers. That's the easiest possible way to send invoices and stay on top of your accounting. Stay tuned for info on how you can get a free 30-day trial while supporting the podcast. Welcome to The Fairer Sense. With me, Tanya. And me, Kara. Women, money, and the fight to break even. Because we give a shit. And you should too. Personal Responsibility versus Systemic Realities. Hey, Tanya. Hey, Kara. Welcome. Welcome back to your own home where you record. (laughs) Welcome to your podcast, Kara. (laughs) I know. What? I don't know why I said welcome, but I did. It's on the record now. But welcome to you listening. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here, truly. Yeah. I think we don't address the listener directly enough, but I would just like to say it's so awesome to be wrapping up season three of The Fairer Sense. The fact that we've been able to have three seasons of this show is really a testament to you for listening. So thank you. It really is. It's been a wild ride in some ways. (laughs) And in other ways, it is truly just us sitting in our homes talking into a microphone. (laughs) Um, But thank you all for being on this journey with us and for all your tweets and your emails and your incredibly kind reviews. So yeah, thanks, guys. And today, to wrap up season three of The Fairer Sense, we've got a big, juicy, controversial topic that we've both been dying to talk about that I think folks who've listened before will know is is right in the wheelhouse of what we talk about here on The Fair Sense. But we're taking on the idea of personal responsibility versus systemic barriers or systemic realities, which is, I think, a dichotomy that we'd probably disagree with entirely. But it is the way that a lot of folks who really cling to that bootstraps narrative uh, set things up, that either you are a victim of your circumstance or you are the captain of your own ship and that you cannot be both. I do completely disagree with the (laughs) idea that that's a dichotomy. I don't disagree with you. I never disagree with you. That's not true. We have a whole episode (laughs) about disagreements. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this is obviously a topic that comes up a lot in the money community, but historically has not always. I think we are edging into a time where people are more and more addressing this. And I think Also, here in the United States, I would imagine in other parts of the world, it's coming up sort of in our politics and in our social conversations, still very much so on the fringe, but it's something that we both feel strongly about and that does have huge impacts. Systems have impacts on our lives, obviously, Um, and it thus has an impact on our money and especially women's money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we as a country have kind of collectively decided to believe in several myths. One of those myths is the idea that you can rise from any level in our economy to any other level if you just work hard enough and want it badly enough. And by every measure of social mobility, that's simply not true. There may have been times in the past when that was true, uh, but for the most part now, it's not. So this idea of the American dream that Anyone can have a house with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids or, you know, whatever else goes into that vision. It's it's just simply not reality anymore in a broad economic sense. And the other thing that we believe is that our experience with anecdotes is representative of the whole economy. So we tend to point to people like, hey, look at Oprah. Oprah was born to a single teenage mom and grew to be a billionaire. Or look at Bill Gates, who, yeah, okay, he had some money, but he went on to be at one time the richest American. Or we look at these examples and we say, okay, well, if this person can do it, then anyone can. But we don't actually look at the statistics that say that those folks are huge outliers and are not representative of what we can do. And it's sort of like we all agree to buy into this this lie that the American dream is alive and well, and that then colors all the rest of it, where then if you aren't a billionaire or you aren't successful at business or you aren't living a life of huge comfort, that you have in some way failed rather than the system has failed you. Yes. And let's be clear 
the American dream has always been a lie <laughs> for some people <laughs> totally. in this country. And it, it has never been a reality for many, many people. It has been a reality for some people, which goes back into this idea of systems and of systems of access. And I think right now we're beginning to hear more conversations around like, is it even ethical to be a billionaire? How come three people have more money than 50 million people combined? And the statistics on that are really difficult to actually really wrap your mind around because the numbers we're dealing with are so huge. So like, for example, uh, the average billionaire <laughs> has about $2 billion to their name. And under the 4% withdrawal rate, they can spend $80 million a year before they run out of money. And that is both of those numbers, $2 billion and $80 million a year, are, are so hard to conceptualize when you also think, oh, well, the average American household income is just a little over $59,000 a year. Like the disconnect is very, very strong. Those numbers don't even seem real. And the way that number also breaks down in an interesting sort of manner is that what to us, what to people like you and I is $1 to a billionaire is $1,355. So when we think about who has money and how much they actually have or how little they actually have and who has access to those systems, and how that affects our day-to-day -day lives, we're really working within a context that it really is hard for our brains to kind of grasp onto. And we see this, and we also don't see this, like I said, reflected in the money conversation in our day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. So there is a story that I have been kind of dying to tell on the podcast that you actually made me feel fits perfectly here. Uh, because you were talking about the the idea of the American dream, we we might even say, and I think I said it exactly this way of like, maybe it was once a reality and now it's not anymore. When you're right, that was for certain people. It may have been a reality that if you were born a white male, you had a very good chance of being able to out earn your parents as an adult. But that was not true universally. So where I live, there's a local small town startup incubator type group, although it does, I think, tend to be mostly retired tech folks more than actual folks trying to start things. But that aside, there was recently a speaker at it who was this older white guy, and he did a presentation on the unsung women inventors of history. Now, everyone that he featured was a pretty well-known story. They were all women who are in the Inventors Hall of Fame. One of them was Hedy Lamarr, who we've talked about on the show. We didn't discover her. She has a Netflix movie about her. Like, <laughs> this is a story that's been told at this point. And he sort of wanted, like, a gold star for talking about the ladies. But I went up to him after and said, hey, like, it'd be really cool to see you do this again, but include some non-white women, like include some women of color who probably also had more barriers and therefore had really interesting stories because they in some way overcame that. And he said, oh, yeah, that would be cool if there were any. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is a laugh so I don't cry moment. But it's so interesting that it's like, on the one hand, we want to believe this lie of the American dream, but then like so many people can't even imagine that a woman of color may have like done a thing more than 50 years ago. Like what world is this in which you can reconcile these two things? We do not have an equal society. We have never had an equal society. And so pretending like we have an equal society when you can very directly point to things that show we don't like... Uh, I just, I don't understand the mental gymnastics involved in that. Wow, that is just a punch in the face of a sentence for sure. We get really stymied in our own experiences. I was at a meeting earlier today where I was asked to be a speaker at an event and they were running through the other speakers. And I said, yeah, I'm super jazzed about this. Would love to speak also, seems like you only have white speakers thus far. I'd really like to point you in the direction of a few women of color that I think can really contribute to this. And the look on her face was like, okay. <laughs> like she wasn't even like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize. Thanks for bringing that up. Or like, yeah, that's such a good idea. She was just like, mm, I've clearly like hand selected the people I want to speak here. And so then I followed it up with, you know, if you're just really leaning on your own personal network and your personal network is a lot of white people, it's hard 
you have to have someone kind of like push you beyond that. So I just want to like kind of advocate here. And she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She warmed up to it. But <laughs> I was like, whoa, taken aback. And I think that's another thing that again ties into this idea of, of personal responsibility and systemic realities and challenges and just truths, which is this idea that the people that we surround ourselves with or the people that we admire or the people that we see a lot are good people and the people that we don't necessarily see or that maybe don't hit certain markers that are important to us are bad people or unimportant people. And I think we see this also really reflected in how we talk and think about people with and without money. So literally in the United States, the richer you are, the more power you have. We have a system that listens to people with money. Some people may say, if you have enough money, you can buy an election. I'm not going to get into that, but... <laughs> We have a system in place where we admire, we engage with, and we want to hear from people who have money. Those to us are the people who have success stories. On the flip side of things, in a lot of the language that we use, people without money are lazy. They are stupid sometimes. I even saw a tweet recently that was like, poor people are fat, essentially is what they were saying, like, and a whole other shamey system. And on the flip side, there is some language around like, rich people are evil, it's bad to have money, and there is virtue in poor, you know, like the, the I work hard even though I don't make that much money and I'm a good person narrative. But when it comes to actual power in the United States, the more money you have, the more power you have. And this idea is really strangling us. <laughs> It also really closes the door on even having conversations. If you believe that people without money are not valuable people, they're not worth listening to, you're not even going to hear their thoughts or concerns or challenges. And if you think people who have money are good people, you're not going to be able to hear, hey, maybe it's a little fudged up that we have a system where three people can have more money than half of the rest of the United States population. You're just going to be defensive right away about that. Completely. And we have two great interviews lined up today that are going to look at some of these questions from a statistical point of view and from a more narrative one in terms of the stories that we tell each other and tell ourselves about money. but. It is always just such an important reminder that we all essentially live in bubbles, and some of those bubbles reinforce more productive thinking than others. But to your point about the woman selecting speakers, you know, she's looking at her networks and saying, well, I picked the, the best people. And uh, it's the same as when we hear people say, well, yeah, no women are blogging about money. And we're like, oh, we're all freaking here and you just don't see us. Uh, but the fact that you choose not to see us doesn't mean we're not here. These are all examples of bubbles in action. and. It's really up to each of us to force ourselves out of that sometimes, even if it's uncomfortable. I spoke with Dr. Diana Elliott, who is a senior research associate in the Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population at the Urban Institute. She and I had a really interesting conversation about, yes, personal responsibility and systemic challenges, but also economic mobility and how people even talk about personal responsibility. Having done qualitative work with low-income families, people want to be personally responsible, right? They want to work. They want to support themselves. They want to make sure that their kids have, have a good life, and they want to do it on their own. So I always find it funny that the discourse is about people wanting to sort of like not do hard work and not be personally responsible when, in fact, that's not at all the case if you talk to people who are low-income. At the same time, we've created this system that doesn't have a whole lot of supports for people who need them, right? So you have people who want to do all the right things, but one financial emergency or blow and they're back to square one. And so it's this challenge to help people stand on their own, be more self-sufficient, while also making sure that, they, that we have appropriate fallbacks for them. So, you know, I'll give an example of in money management, right? I have a colleague who likes to say that there are good money managers and there are bad money managers. 
but you'll find some of the best money managers in a low income neighborhood. You'll find some of the worst money managers in a high income neighborhood. And she says this because there are some people who are just terrible with managing their finances, right? At the same time, you have a lot of people who are really good at managing their finances. They take that personal responsibility, and yet they're in such a financially precarious state because of the system that they're one financial emergency away from sort of falling falling off. So I like to give this example of, you know, let's imagine a single mom who needs to get her kids to, to childcare, who needs to get to her minimum wage job at a superstore. Her car breaks down. This is a financial emergency where for most of us, we can just pull out our credit card and we can pay for that, right? But if you're operating outside of the traditional financial system, you don't have credit, you don't have a credit card, you then have to turn to your financially precarious family members for a loan. They might not have the money. They might be tired of lending out all of their money to other people. Then you have to go potentially to a payday lender. You're paying 400% interest on that loan. And you're in this whole downward spiral. She could potentially lose her job because she it, there was a delay in getting her car repaired. And then she's spiraling even further. So there's no there's not a lot of backstops for people when they have a financial emergency. For those of us in the credit system, we can pull out our credit card and just say, here you go, put it on my credit card. And when I do presentations in a room, I'll often ask people, you know, when it comes to credit, how do you pay for a car repair. And inevitably, everyone's hands will go up and they'll say, I pull out my credit card. So if you don't have those either government backstops or market-based backstops, it's really, really hard to be personally responsible in the way that most low-income families would like to be. I remember reading a personal finance blogger a few years ago did an unbanked challenge where they had $100 and they had to figure out how to get themselves across their city and buy like three things at CVS without a bank account. So it was like, well, I had to go get a money order and then that cost Two fifty. So now I only had you know ninety seven fifty. I didn't have the full one hundred. It was so fascinating how much money they lost just trying to access systems. I remember they bought like a Visa, you know, prepaid card, but it was like a five dollar activation fee. And I was just like, oh my god! It's to your point, it's expensive to be poor. I've done two different pieces now where I broke down how expensive it is. And I did an estimation for people who are unbanked. And if you just don't have access to traditional banking services and use sort of the typical usage of various services, it can cost over $800 a year. And when you think about how little people who are unbanked make, right, sort of a large share of people who are unbanked make less than $15,000 a year, that is a huge chunk of their yearly income that they're paying just on the banking services that we take for granted. Similarly, if you don't have a credit score and you're operating outside of the credit system, it's really expensive. Or if you have subprime credit, which a lot of people in low-income communities have, you're, you know, I like to give this example of purchasing a $10,000 car. With subprime credit, you'll pay $4,000 over the course of a four-year loan on that used car. If you have prime credit, it's only $1,000. So it's another way in which people who are low income or who operate outside of the traditional financial services institutions pay so much more to live than the rest of us. How much economic mobility is there really in the United States? We like to think we live in this meritocracy where if you just work hard enough and long enough, you will succeed. But what do the numbers actually say around that? We're not a meritocracy. <laughs> Our country has really been built on this false narrative that people can pull themselves up by the bootstraps if they work hard enough. And, you know, the media and, you know, we like to point to these examples, these anecdotes of people who started in a low-income community or low-income family, and now they're mega millionaires, but they're really exceptionally rare. If you look at the predominant data on economic mobility, there's a tremendous amount of stickiness at the ends of the economic ladder. So people like to typically think about economic mobility in terms of, you know, am I ahead of where my parents were at the same age? Will my children be ahead of me at the same age? And what we find is that if you're born in the, at the top of the ladder, you tend to stay at the top of the ladder. 
if you're born at the bottom of the ladder, you tend to stay at the bottom of the ladder. So there's not a whole lot of movement. And even if you're born at the bottom and you manage to move up, you're not moving up that much. There's a lot of reasons behind that. You know, we like to say there's no silver bullet for economic mobility. There's so many things that play into this. I'll point to a recent example. The college admission scandal is just this great example of how how far parents will go to ensure that their kids maintain their place at the top of the ladder, right? So you have uh, parents of means who are literally paying to secure spots at elite colleges and universities for their children. And that is a really classic example of how people at the top can maintain their position at the top. Robert Reich, former U.S. Labor Secretary, tweeted out something a few weeks ago that he said, this is a truly staggering fact. Wall Street bonuses totaled $27.5 billion last year, meaning 2018, which is more than three times the combined annual earning of all American workers employed full-time at the federal minimum wage. We can and must raise the minimum wage and tax the rich. I shared that on my Instagram account and people went nuts. Like they are adding value to the economy. So why take them? Taxing the rich is theft. And I guarantee that absolutely nobody on my Instagram account is a billionaire. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But everyone thinks that maybe that opportunity will exist for them. Right. So, <laughs> and they don't, it, it, we have this real disconnect that, you know, if, if we had a different structure, some of that money could go to benefit a lot more people, including them, right? But it becomes a very hot button issue in this country to talk about some sort of redistribution or some sort of like investment in people who don't necessarily have means. Likewise, people definitely see economic mobility as a zero sum game, right? So you have parents who absolutely believe that if their kid somehow loses out or if they lose out themselves as a family to someone else, then um, it disrupts sort of their advantage, right? When in fact, I think there's a lot of evidence that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so, <laughs> but reframing that narrative in the U.S. is a big challenge. Yeah, I do feel like our country is so mired in this idea of, you know, do for yourself, be a pioneer, make it happen. And everyone has the same chances. What's in the past is in the past. Slavery was so long ago, it doesn't have any impact on today's, you know, black families. And it's, it's so clear to me that it's not true. But having these conversations, people really do go from zero to 60 so fast, they get so defensive. Which is why more conversation about this is really important, right? So, you know, although we're talking a lot more about the fact that we're not a meritocracy now than we've ever been talking about before, we probably need to have more conversations. And we need to make sure that every kid growing up who lives in a wealthy suburban neighborhood knows how privileged they are and how they benefit from that privilege. I'm an argumentative person. <laughs> I own that about myself. And I even see myself, I dig in on my beliefs so quickly. So we know we need to have more of these conversations, but how do you recommend or advise or even just approach these conversations yourself? How do you get other people to really hear what you have to say about the data around money and economics in the United States? Yeah, I think the key is always to frame it in a vignette that they can relate to. So as we talked about earlier, right, framing the using a credit card to help you get out of a scrape vignette is really important because people have all been in that situation. They've all needed to use a credit card. So what if you don't have a credit card? That's a really important sort of teaching moment. Similarly, when you explain to people how expensive it is to be in poverty, that's really eye-opening. When I taught undergrads, I like to use the example of um, welfare and how much people actually get, if they're even lucky enough to get welfare these days, how much they actually get. And it was so eye-opening to the undergrads that I would share that data for because they would say, I can't live off of that. And I said, exactly, <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. So why would we, ex- this is not generous by any stretch of the imagination. Why would we expect that people would want this, this as a choice? So it becomes a really eye-opening moment. And the more that we can have these really honest conversations about money and about how little people have in certain neighborhoods and certain circumstances, I think that's really important. The fact that we don't talk about money or finances enough, I think, is a hindrance to these really honest moments. Running a business of one means you wear many hats. Marketer, content creator, CEO, office custodian. There are many things that demand your attention and you need all the assistance you can get. That's why cloud accounting software FreshBooks is so cool. They take the work out of getting paid so you can focus on doing the work you need to keep your business running. With FreshBooks, you can create a customized invoice, track all your income, and link a business credit card to automatically track business spending. FreshBooks makes it super simple to do your accounting. The website is clean and easy to understand, and it makes accounting one less thing that you need to worry about as a business owner. Most accounting services come with lots of bells and whistles that you don't need as a freelancer, and FreshBooks cuts all of that out to make it as easy to use as possible. We've both used it and can attest to it being the easiest possible way to do your accounting, and maybe the prettiest. Plus, FreshBooks has recently gotten into the events game, which you know I love, with their hashtag I make a living events around the US. They talk to freelancers and small business owners about how they make a living, which is something that we both think is pretty cool. Head to freshbooks.com slash TFC to claim your 30-day free trial and enter the fairer sense in the how did you hear about us section. It's a win-win. You get something free while supporting the fairer sense. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks already. That's freshbooks.com slash TFC. I talked to Charlotte Coles, who is a freelance writer writing about money for New York Magazine's The Cut and The New York Times. And, you know, we're huge fans of The Cut over here. Charlotte and I started the conversation talking about what she's learned from years and years of interviewing people about money. I've spoken to a lot of different people about money and their own financial backgrounds and their stories. And I have to say, it's really been, I want to say it's uplifting, but a lot of it is really depressing. There's just very little that a lot of people can do. It's very easy to lose footing financially. But if you start off with a certain amount of insecurity, it can be really, really hard to gain the ground that you need in order to actually not be wiped out very quickly and very easily. I'm curious on the other end of the spectrum, for folks who are doing really well, who are thriving in our super flawed economy, what's your sense of their recognition of their own role versus the role of supports around them, like whether it be their family or just society as a whole? Do you think that, you know, to put it bluntly, like do the rich people see the advantages they had or do they kind of say, hey, I did this myself? There's a psychological bias called attribution bias. Humans have a tendency that when something bad is happening to them, it's because of larger forces. So say you lose your job, you'll be like, oh, I think it's because there's about to be a recession. People just like aren't aware of it yet. And then when good things happen to people, they attribute it to their own actions. When really it's it's rarely that straightforward. Usually it's probably a mix of both. If you're already well off, it's really easy to stay well off. If you have some money that you can invest, then you will make more money. (laughs) You see this all over the place where people who were born with certain advantages think that they are like brilliant business people. And they're not necessarily like this is another interview that we featured with Abigail Disney, who is an heir to tremendous wealth. And she was like, yeah, it's really easy to make more money if you already have it. She was someone who really had a lot of self-awareness around her wealth. Everybody wants to believe that they create their own fortunes, right? People want to feel like they deserve what they have. And in some cases, in fact, in most cases, you don't deserve what you have. And I don't mean that in a way that people who have worked really hard don't deserve to be rewarded for their work. They absolutely do. But there are a lot of people who also work really hard who are not rewarded for their work. They don't deserve it any less. There's this myth around grit and hard work and that if you really put your all into it, it'll pay off. And sometimes the truth is it doesn't. I wish that more people were aware of that and were really honest about it. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I loved our conversation when when you interviewed me for The Cut was that we could actually get into some of that nuance. Like, I know that I have disappointed other reporters who've said, okay, give us the secret. Like, how did you save all this money? And what were the things you cut? I was like, no, no, we just earned more money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, it is a hell of a lot easier to save money when you earn more. That's not a very good headline, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people don't want to hear that because that's just not possible for some people. It strikes me as deeply problematic. Like, what you're talking about with the attribution bias and a very popular article these days, which I'm sure you have seen plenty of, Mm -hmm. is sort of the like, we talked to eight billionaires about their personal habits. And yeah. And so let's all like get up at four in the morning because like these eight white dudes who have a lot of money all said this works for them when, you know, we're not recognizing the survivorship bias in there. The fact that like probably millions of people have tried exactly the same thing that those folks do and it didn't work, but we're only talking to the ones for whom it did work. And it feels like a lot of that stuff, especially really idolizing the super wealthy, perpetuates a lot of these myths in really hurtful ways, like Mm -hmm. helping to reconvince us that it's all about what you do as a person and not what society sets you up to do or generational wealth sets you up to do. And as someone in the media, like what do you feel like we should be doing instead? Is there a better way to help people kind of see the bigger picture and see the truth? It is so hard because you also don't want to be like, well, you should just give up. Like there's nothing you can do (laughs) because A, that's not helpful to anyone. And obviously there are usually the people who wind up getting interviewed for these types of things where it's like the one person who overcomes the odds and then becomes held up as this poster child for the fact that like, oh, if this one person ran away from home at 14 and and is now like a bajillionaire, that's a severe outlier. And it does not mean that you should then run away from home or do whatever that person did to get where they are. I really just don't want to sell a false narrative. Like I, I think it's important to tell people's stories truthfully, because most of them are very, very complex. So even if someone came from tremendous, tremendous hardship, sometimes it takes just one person in their lives who got them in the door for that internship. And then they happen to be in that internship when a job opened up that was the first step that they took that sort of like set them on this chain reaction. You know, these trap doors open sometimes if you're really lucky. And so that shouldn't be ignored. But at the same time, that's sometimes what it takes and you can't create a trap door for yourself. Do you see where where we strike that balance? Like how do we tell stories in ways that help inspire people, but also don't do the flip side, which is shaming them if they can't achieve the same thing. Well, I think that there's also a more optimistic way to look at that, which is when you make it clear what people are up against, like some serious obstacles that are really outside of their control, it can help them feel less ashamed when they hit some of those those walls. You never want to be like, oh, it's not your fault just because you are X or Y or Z this is always going to be really hard for you and you're never going to get past this. It's more like you want to know what you're up against. You want to know exactly where some of these barriers are so that you can either A, buckle down extra hard or B, just cut yourself some slack when you hit that wall. I like that. And I think that's a fair bit of what we try to do on the show. Like, I think there are those who will listen and say, oh, this is all identity politics. And we're like, we're just trying to help people feel seen in their struggles so that they know they're not alone in that. And like, this is a normal thing. And so if they're facing it, like, hey, that's that's a lot of us. I'm curious, you know, if you were going to give advice to people who read financial content, who read kind of some of the narratives that that you do, maybe some of like the money diaries on Refinery29, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, but who also maybe read the success stories, like here are things six successful billionaires do. What is a good way that they can be critical readers? Like what are the questions they should be asking of themselves or pursuing further to say, okay, how can I better contextualize this to understand how it applies or doesn't apply to me? I really think that everybody lies a little bit about money. (laughs) I don't mean that like everyone is like sitting around being like, well, I really do this, but I'm going to tell people that I do this. I think that everyone lies to themselves a little bit. 
and in telling their own financial stories, there's always going to be some spackling. Sometimes people just don't even think about some of the practices that they have that maybe make a big difference in the the positive or negative category, just because it's so ingrained. And it's either something they're really ashamed of or something they're really proud of, or just something that they neutrally do not think about. I think in talking about money, it's really important to always be aware that there is a lot of information that you're not getting when you are reading someone's story. It's also like self-perception, right? Like everybody always wants to think that they're doing a little bit better than they are. Or if they have like really bad habits, they'll be like, I used to do this, but I've gotten a lot better lately when really they probably haven't. It's not a bad thing. It's a really good thing. People need to feel hopeful. That is an incredibly important part of getting anywhere. You need to believe that you're like on the upward trajectory. Obviously, you can't be positive necessarily what folks have lied to you about. And again, we'll assume that it's the self-perception type small lies, not that anyone is deliberately trying to deceive you. But if you had to guess, do you think that there's a difference in what each group tends to lie about? One thing that's for sure, especially in the United States, we have such a culture of wanting to believe that, you know, wanting like the bootstraps narrative to be true and everybody wanting to believe that they created their own wealth and that they didn't have any advantages And so I think that one thing that people almost always do is overlook the advantages that they have. A lot of people will, you know, will say that they're really grateful and express a lot of gratitude. But I think it's you're never going to find someone who's like, I don't deserve what I have. It just happened to me. (laughs) Everybody always wants to, to look at some causality between what they have created, how hard they've worked and what they have. As a society, we are starting to have more of a language and more comfort talking about hardship and and systemic hardship. But I really don't think that we have a language and any sort of template for discussing privilege. There's just this missing piece where people with privilege don't know how to talk about it. And I think that like, in, in my opinion, I think that we do need to talk about that more so that people without privilege can also understand that the things that you don't have are sometimes just as important as the things that you do have. And to be able to realize that like, maybe if you're competing against someone who has all of these advantages and you lose, it's not because you did anything wrong. We should talk about privilege more. And, and I don't have the answer of how we should address it better. It hasn't caught up to the conversation about disadvantage. It has always felt like a huge contradiction to me that we as a country obviously value wealth. We put the wealthy on massive pedestals. We perpetuate the myth of socioeconomic mobility, that anyone can get to any level if they just work hard enough. And yet we don't want to acknowledge when we ourselves are wealthy or to (laughs) acknowledge our own success in a certain way. Like those two things are so fundamentally opposed to one another. From your perspective as a journalist and having written about this, you know, thinking about privilege in particular, because you've got at, at once this idea that those who are aware of the struggles that other face may not want to talk about privilege because it feels like bragging or it feels like sort of rubbing others' faces in it. But then you have a, a whole group of folks for whom the P word, uh, privilege, is like an accusation that you didn't earn this. You didn't do anything to get where you are. It was all handed to you. Yeah. For you know that side of it, I mean, do you have any thoughts from from being in this conversation every day of like how do we break through that? How do we help people see that this isn't either or? This is a question of hard work and advantages or hard work and disadvantages. How do we sort of get people on both ends of this to a place of actually understanding each other? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of people who have had privileges and are aware of them, A, so like first step, you have privileges. Second step is whether you are aware of those privileges. And third step is how you can really wrap your head around talking about those privileges without feeling like a jerk or also just being really embarrassed. Like a lot of people are straight up ashamed of the fact that they know that they have not had to work as hard for what they have as a lot of other people. That's an uncomfortable scenario. And you live every day of your life being like, 
is this me or is this all of this stuff that I had going for me that built my momentum here? That coupled with like a very understandable level of anger towards wealthy people who have not shared the huge advantages that they've had with other people can create a huge disconnect. Not only do people not want to talk about their financial advantages, but a lot of times they don't even want to be around people that would make them aware that it was apparent. really struck me that kind of came up in both of our interviews is this idea of people are uncomfortable talking about money. Yes, we know that. It's a social taboo. But people get really uncomfortable when you point out privilege. And we are moving into this time of kind of like a class rage. Charlotte kind of talked about that a little bit. People don't even want to engage with the idea that point out their privileges. Yeah. And Charlotte and I talked much longer than the portion of the conversation that we played here. And one of the things she and I went on to talk about, um, I wish we had endless time to play it all, uh, was that she sort of talked about the people who understand on some level that they had privileges that others did not have necessarily, and that that feels uncomfortable to bring forward. But what I raised is the people who I think if you talk about money on Twitter, for example, you are well familiar with this type of person who cannot acknowledge any privilege whatsoever and sees it as an attack if you suggest that they might have had some advantages in life. And I do think ultimately, though, it comes from the same place of whether you know it consciously or you are denying it and it's an unconscious thing. It's it's ultimately about avoiding discomfort and avoiding having uncomfortable conversations or having to say to yourself, like, hey, I accomplished this stuff and that's great and that's valid, but it has a little asterisk next to it, which is to say that someone else might have worked just as hard as I did, but didn't get as far. And again, that's not undermining the accomplishment. It's just saying that, you know, everything is in context. And I think in order to get past the money taboos and all of the myths we perpetuate because we can't talk honestly about money, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. We have to be willing to have discomfort in these conversations. And that's sort of against human nature. It's like if we can avoid discomfort and keep things easy, we'd, we'd usually rather do that. Uh, yes, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And one of my biggest fears um, is pain. And I hate pain. I hate being uncomfortable. It's so awful. That's every human ever, like you said. I think too about something that Toni Morrison said, and that came up on episode 24 with our guest, Cord Jefferson. Toni Morrison said, who are you without racism? Are you still pretty? Are you still smart if you are operating outside of this system that says white people are better? And I think that's a big part of the fear. And Charlotte kind of alluded to this. It's like, well, who am I without my privilege? Or are, are these accomplishments truly my own? Or are these just a result of all the assistance that I got? And that's a very scary question to answer versus saying like, well, I worked really, really hard and I stayed up really late, like a bunch of weeks in a row working on this. So I know it's a result of that. I, and I realized that I'm trying to have compassion because people who say that privilege isn't real really drive me up a wall. But I am trying to have compassion for people who are fearful of having to look in that mirror and say, actually, a portion of what I've accomplished has nothing to do with my abilities. Mm -hmm. It was just part of the assistance I got. I have compassion for that, but exactly like you said, we have to get comfortable with discomfort. We have to be able to have these conversations and then to move on from them and say, okay, what next? I'm with you 100% in terms of being really frustrated by people who can't acknowledge that they had advantages that others didn't have. And I'm purposely saying advantages because I do think that that is easier to understand than privilege, which has become such a loaded term and it's become like an ideological weapon kind of word. It's so born of this idea that we have as a society where we are not good at tolerating nuance. We really love the word or. It's you are either this or you are this. To me, it's actually a really simple switch. All you have to do is swap out or and say and. 
I had this advantage and I worked really hard and here's what happened. It's not about trying to take accomplishments away from people. It's not about taking people's social or economic status away from them, except maybe for those mega billionaires. Uh, But it's just about trying to have more compassion for one another and to stop mischaracterizing the poor or to suggest that those who haven't been able to move above the socioeconomic status they were born into have in some way failed rather than acknowledging that we have a fundamentally unfair system, a fundamentally deeply unequal system. When you look at both income and wealth, it is the worst now that it has been since the Great Depression. And as you said a few minutes ago, like that is why I do think we're starting to see some shifts in some of the language. We're seeing people talk about some of these inequality issues more, which is really good and really necessary. But on some level, it's like it just comes down to the word and instead of the word or. Like this shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I think about all the time is the type of work we value in this country and in this world. I spent, oh my God, I spent three years waiting tables and then there's some overlap. I spent five years catering. So I spent about seven years in the food service industry. And let me tell you, that is real work. It is very difficult. It is also very low paying work in large part. And it is not work that we value. It's really not. And most minimum wage jobs is not work that we value. And you see that reflected in the language of like people who are anti-raising the minimum wage are like, well, they should go get a real job. Or, you know, you, we shouldn't pay people well for flipping burgers at McDonald's, even as they are utilizing that service every day of their lives, <laughs> which is really frustrating. But I think this idea of people are afraid that they won't be rewarded for their work, but it's also what type of work are we even valuing? And semi-recently, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is the congresswoman from New York that's all over the place, AOC, you see her everywhere. She had this Twitter thread that kind of blew up. I'm going to read you two tweets from it. She says, when I was waitressing, I used to jerk awake in the middle of sleep, worried that I may have forgotten if a bill cleared or if I had enough money to pay a doctor in cash. Was that because I was irresponsible? No, it's because I wasn't being paid a living wage as cost of living skyrocketed. Now I'm going through a huge income transition compared to living off tips, which different pay every week, very hard. And I have health insurance, which now means I have fewer expenses. According to banks, I'd be more responsible, but my character hasn't changed, just my math. Now, I can relate to this firsthand because I too have been jerked awake in the middle of the night, wondering if I have enough money to cover all my bills. And working for tips is very, very difficult. It is variable pay. People stiff you all the time. Oh, it's so hard. It's a fucked up system that we should get rid of. I was thrilled to see someone in Congress talk about this. Talk about this from a firsthand experience. Because again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, a lot of people in politics come from a lot of money because it costs a lot of money to run for higher office in this country. When you come from money, you may not be as aware of the struggles as people without money, right? And vice versa. I don't know what it's like to be a billionaire. I have no idea, but I know life's easier for them. So it's exciting to see Twitter threads like this. It's exciting to see Elizabeth Warren, who is running for president, talk about a student loan forgiveness plan that takes an intersectional point of view and says, hey, women and people of color have higher loans, usually at higher interest rates, and have had systemic barriers to education for years. We need to include them specifically in these specific ways in our student loan forgiveness plan. It can't just be what works for a straight white man works for a queer woman of color as student loans. That's not the same case. And we have to take that difference into account. It's really, really, really exciting to see these conversations happen. And I hope that change will come from them, but we need more people to get in on this conversation. I mean, the super fucked up thing about that is like, there's probably going to be some like old conservative white dudes who are like, yeah, AOC is an example of social mobility. Look at her. She was a waitress and now she's in Congress as though she's not a massive outlier. But (laughs) obviously I agree with you. And that's like what I was talking about with Charlotte, where for us, the secret of saving more to retire early was earning more. It wasn't figuring out some magic silver bullet that doesn't exist of how to save money. It was when you have more money, it is easier to save money. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think about this. I think about so many things all the time, but I often think about my own debt payoff story because in some ways that is a classic 
bootstrap story, right? I was like, I want to pay off my debt. I'm going to work these five part-time jobs seven days a week. I'm going to push myself. I'm going to ask for a raise from my catering company and I'm going to funnel all that money towards debt. I'm going to live super frugally. Like, let's do this. It's such a like libertarian victory in so many ways. In other ways, a different viewpoint is it's super fudged up that I had to work that hard, that I had to even go through that. In other ways, it's also a highlight reel of privilege. Good thing I spoke English. Good thing I had a, access to a car. Good thing I already lived with three roommates and my rent was between five and $600. You know, <laughs> like, uh. So I use that as just an example of all of these things, exactly like you said, it's not or, it's and. All of these things are true. Yes, I had an incredibly low rent. Yes, I worked my ass off. Yes, I looked for ways to earn more money. And yes, I was good with that money once I got it. All of these things happened at the same time. I think it's great that you can see your own story through those different lenses because I think most of us see most of our stories through some lens. I loved what Charlotte said that everybody lies a little bit about money and it's not intentionally to deceive anyone, but that, you know, we we truly are bad at actually being objective about ourselves and our own journeys and where we've been. And so trying to translate that into a money story that we're sharing in a world where it's impolite to talk about money and where it's impolite to acknowledge that racism exists or that systemic barriers exist. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so, it's so laden with landmines. For me, I want to close with an idea that I saw in some research done by the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. A researcher named Eduardo Tesso found that, and this is quoting from the report, found that Americans overestimated people's chances of climbing from the bottom to the top of the economic ladder. He also compares this to Europe, which I found really fascinating, quoting again. Meanwhile, Europeans underestimated the probability of rising out of poverty. And this happened despite the United States' relatively limited government programs as compared to European nations' more generous safety net policies in areas such as education and healthcare. This goes on to say it actually looks at people's political leanings and said researchers also identified key differences between politically liberal and conservative participants, both in the U.S. and Europe. Liberals believed that social mobility was more difficult and were more likely to support government policies aimed at fixing inequality. Conservatives tended to lean the opposite way, but among conservatives, those who considered it hard for poor people to rise into the upper or middle class did not favor government intervention any more strongly than did conservatives who felt differently, perhaps because they believed that policymakers would botch the job. So their big conclusion here is that simply giving conservatives more information about low social mobility in the United States is not likely to work. Instead, politicians need to show these voters that the government can be trusted to carry out effective solutions, which to me feels super insurmountable. No longer quoting, this is me. But like, that's very depressing to me that fundamentally even having this conversation about social mobility and the lack thereof, the fact that people are likely, especially if they're born at the ends of the spectrum, they are likely to stay there, which is not to say it's impossible to break out, but we're just talking about statistical likelihood, that that is not enough on its face, that you have to actually establish trust in government in order to get people to want to address those gaps. That feels a whole lot harder than simply sharing facts with people. But I mean, I suppose that's sort of the post-fact fake news world that we live in. Oh, my gosh. Post-fact world. What a sad place to be. Yeah, well, it's like it's like we've mentioned a few times throughout this podcast and in my conversation with Diana, you know, people, they tend to double down on what they already believe, which it's such a hard thing to argue with or to, you can give someone all the facts and figures and if they just don't want to believe it or if it's too much of a threat to their worldview, they will just simply choose not to believe it. I recently watched the uh, Netflix Flat Earthers documentary. Oh my gosh, so worth a watch, but so horrifying. So worth a watch. Definitely like you could see one of the characters, I guess he's not a character, he's a real guy out there, but one of the people on the show, he's the guy who runs the largest Facebook group for Flat Earthers. At one point he's saying you know, flat earth is just kind of like the tip of the iceberg. And like, you know, they want to like have us shoot up our kids with like all these vaccinations and they want to like steal our guns. And he goes down this kind of rabbit hole. It's very brief, but he like ties together all these conspiracy theories and you realize, oh man, 
this is to me the idea of the earth being flat is humorous i'm like oh that's like a harmless conspiracy theory but then you begin to see these people start here and then they piece together all of these things and then they end up at with this fringe belief that is gaining steam and you really see oh okay and that person's voting and that person's running for office and that person's getting elected into the judiciary or that person is a member of the police force and now their belief system is part of the system system and that's where we have fudged up problems ultimately what we have to what i strive to do is think to myself, what are the decisions I'm making? Who am I surrounding myself with? How am I talking to other people? And what is the work that I am doing? And finding other like-minded people, such as yourself, Tanya, here on this podcast. I think we do great work on this podcast. I think we raise a lot of issues other people aren't raising. I think we talk about things in a way other people aren't talking about them. And I think we are seeing real ripple effects. Change is possible, even in the face of overwhelming odds. (laughs) It is. It also can come down to a really simple question a lot of the time. And the question that I try to ask myself, which I'm not perfect at this, but I try to say, is my personal experience likely to be representative? Or is there a chance that I have had a different experience from what some folks have had? And like the answer is usually the latter. (laughs) Not that I'm not representative in some ways, but, you know, I think we just need to accept collectively that people have different experiences in life and we all live within these bubbles. And just because everyone in your neighborhood or everyone in your social circles or everyone at your company that you work with seems pretty similar in this way, that doesn't speak for everybody. And someone who is a recent immigrant or doesn't speak English or is a person of color or is in a marginalized religious community like Muslims, uh, the way they're treated in the U.S. now, like any of those things. Someone who's disabled, you could have a million different factors or even just growing up in a different geographic area. We see huge differences in social mobility by geography. Like all of those things are ways that people can have a very different lived experience from your own that almost stand alone from money. And just learning to even accept that and acknowledge that and show a little empathy, I think would take us a long way. One of the things you may have noticed this season on The Fairer Sense is that I think, if if I do say so myself, I think the podcast has sounded amazing. I mean, of course, we sound amazing. (laughs) I can't say, I can't do those like big, bold compliments to ourselves like you do without laughing. Kara, you still know you're my my self-confidence hero. Oh my God. But the show has sounded so amazing in part because of an amazing musician named the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, who you may have heard they, I'm going to use the ambiguous pronoun, they have written uh, theme songs for shows like Reply All, uh, which is probably the biggest one, but lots of other really big podcasts. And Breakmaster came to us right before the season started and offered to donate the suite of music that you hear in between segments on the show. And so all through season three, we've been just so spoiled by wonderful, wonderful Breakmaster Cylinder music. And we are so, so grateful. Breakmaster, you are a rad feminist. Yes. Major shout out, Breakmaster. Major shout out to all our guests who have been on the show and willing to have these conversations with us. And again, major shout out to all our listeners for being here putting us in your earbuds. We see you and appreciate you. Yeah, we do. It's a funny thing because a lot of folks who go on podcasts are are looking to talk about a project they did. Like I just went through this with releasing my book, Work Optional, with trying to talk about the book. And like we recently had a documentary crew in here and they just wanted to talk about our life. And I was like, I'm only doing it if you'll feature the book. Like it was very blatant, but you know, someone wants three days of your time. Like you got to be upfront about your terms. But I I say that to say that I really appreciate the guests who've been willing to come on and like not plug their stuff, but instead have conversations that are very hard and very personal. And I think folks have really put some amazing stuff out there this season. So if you haven't listened to all of season three, I really, I'm super proud of this one. I hope that you'll listen to all the episodes. I think we did our best work so far. And I think we're just going to build on it in season four. 
Hell yeah, we are. Definitely send us any emails. You can tweet at us if you have topic ideas for season four, but any email is just more organized. (laughs) Sometimes I lose the tweets. You know, I'm like, oh yeah. And then three weeks later, I'm like, where did I, what was that? I can't quite remember. I'm like an old lady with my tech these days. It's also true that we are both trying to be on Twitter less. So uh, we're still there. You can always tweet at us at Sense, but just know that we are both trying to not be on it nonstop. (laughs) Yes. We are also on Instagram where I am failing miserably at not being on it nonstop. And that is also at Sense. Really appreciate when y'all give us story shout outs and share your feels on podcast episodes. That's just really nice to see. Yeah, we already have some awesome episodes lined up for season four. We're going to be talking about online harassment that women face disproportionately. We're going to be talking about promoting yourself and what that looks like, especially for women where that's a more loaded topic. And we've got some awesome guests coming who you have probably heard of. So we're going to take a few months off and kind of like not do the podcast thing, but then come back to you guys in the late summer with some rad new shows. I'm so excited. Yeah. We're going to basically hibernate, create awesome stuff, and then come back and just throw it all up in your faces (laughs) in a non-threatening kind of way. Oh my God. Throw it in your faces. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you get bonus episodes that we release this summer. And of course, so that you get the news about season four coming. And uh, you can do that in any podcast player, whatever you use. Just hit that subscribe button. And y'all know that we love your reviews. If you are loving us, please, please, please leave us a review in the iTunes app. It's super easy. You can just tap the stars with what you think is appropriate. Um, Or if you want to write us out a review, they truly, truly, I know I say this all the time, but they truly make our days. And they also help support the show in terms of sponsorship and keeping us running. So if you feel it in your hearts, we would love to see your reviews. Like one recent review from Young Fire Knight who said, while this podcast is primarily geared toward women, I think all guys should listen to every episode and then listen again, this time taking notes. And then when we tweeted that, he responded with a picture of his notes. (laughs) I can't even tell you. Oh, go ahead. You go. (laughs) No, no. Just like, oh, talk about heartwarming stuff. We love hearing that so, so much. And thank you to all the guys who are listening. This is about women, but it's not only for women. And so men listening, we appreciate you. Listen, we need men up in here more than ever before. Okay. (laughs) We need you. And yes. Okay. Young Fire Night, if you're listening right now, I can't tell you, I told so many people about your review Specifically, I told T-Bone and this other guy that we will call J-Shot, <laughs> which is a Parks and Rec reference if anyone gets that. Um, J-Shot came over for dinner with me and T-Bone, and I mentioned that you take notes to my podcast. And they were both like, oh, my God, we got to step up our game. And I was like, yeah, you got to step up your game. <laughs> I proposed to him on Twitter. Let's go, guys. <laughs> And you're really, you're really affecting change everywhere. <laughs> Amen to that. So whether you take notes or not, there will never be like a pop quiz or any sort of grades assigned. But it is nice to hear people taking a lot of this stuff seriously and thinking about what their role can be in creating a society that doesn't need the fairer sense. That's my dream is that we put ourselves out of business by changing the world. Oh, hell yeah. I support that dream. <laughs> So I think I want to play this one out with uh, this goofy song by Breakmaster Cylinder called Chicken Opera. That's like music plus chicken sounds. <laughs> according to Breakmaster is a test of character if you, <laughs> if you like chicken opera. So here you go. You can decide for yourself. And in the meantime, stay rad. Stay rad. The Fairer Sense are Kara Perez and me, Tanya Hester. Editing by me. Our theme song is by The Insider. All other music appears courtesy of the generous and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
If you need music to license for your podcast or other project, check them out at breakmastercylinder.bandcamp.com. You can always find me at ournextlife.com and Kara at bravelygo.co. It is difficult for our human monkey brains. Did I say human monkey brains? I meant to say. <laughs> it just came, came right out. I don't know what I meant to say. Uh, we can edit that out. Uh, <laughs>